Hi, I'm Gary Duncan. Along with my family and all of us at KFUO, I wish you a Merry Christmas. We read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In Romans 6.23, For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. See, when the Bible speaks of salvation, it's a gift from God. It's something given to us freely, not something we've earned. During this holiday season, I hope you're comforted by the words of Scripture. Also, during this time of giving, please pray for KFUO. Pray that we continue to have the resources needed to proclaim Christ worldwide. We read in Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Our mission at KFUO is to proclaim the word of Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Would you help us do that? Please consider making a gift today to KFUO. Call 800-844-0524. That's 800-844-0524. Thanks for your support, and Merry Christmas. Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon, good afternoon, and welcome to Concord Matters on this Tuesday afternoon, December 19th. We're coming to you live from the studios of Worldwide KFUO here at the International Center of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I'm your host for this program. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, the pastor of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bonterre, Missouri. Today we're going to be talking about the church. What does our confessions, what do our confessions say about the nature of the church and what it consists and in what it does not consist? If you'd like to get in on our program today with your comments or questions, we have a toll-free number all across North America, and that is 800-730-2727. Again, 800-730-2727. And locally here in St. Louis... Area code 314-821-0850. Again, that's 314-821-0850. You can also email us your comments or questions. Uh, The email address is kfuo at kfuo.org. We have two guests in the studio here today who have never been on this program before, but I've asked them to be here today. And they are, first of all, to my immediate right, uh, the Reverend Dr. Lee Hagen, and he is the president of the Missouri District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Welcome, Lee. Charlie, it's good to be with you. Good. And where can people find out more about the Missouri... Do you ever get people confused about Missouri District and Missouri Synod? Oh, all the time. Really? Yeah. What, explain the difference. Well, 
the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is divided up into 35 regional, what we call districts. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of those, strangely enough, is just the state of Missouri. And so when you have the Missouri District as well as the Missouri Synod, it leads to a lot of confusion, a lot of mail that gets passed back and forth between our office and the Synod headquarters okay. here uh, across town. Most people assume my office is here at the International Center. But it's over at the Lutheran Hour Lutheran Ministries, Ministries building. building, yes, right. But not too far. No, nope, this not is at sort all. of like the uh, LCMS Vatican, St. Louis. We got the publishing house, the seminary, the the Lutheran Hour, the district, and the synod, and the radio station, all here in close proximity. Yes. So uh, how long have you been the president of this district? Uh, About two and a half years, and we're looking forward to uh, a convention next summer. Uh, All the districts will have their convention sometime after the first of the year through about the month of July. So ours is in June next summer. And how many congregations in this district? There's 294 here in the Missouri district. I knew it was close to 300. Yes. Now, before you became the uh, district president, you were a longtime pastor. I, I recall... You were for how many years at uh, Concordia, Missouri? Yeah, 13 years at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Concordia, Missouri. Good, good. Well, so you have experience, extensive experience as a parish pastor and now also as a bureaucrat. Yes, <laughs> that's the... why I have time this week. All the real pastors, uh, except you guys, are busy with Advent preparations, well, but I, uh, I had a little time. Preach, I know you get to preach quite often and that you're a good, you have a pastoral uh, concern as well. Good. Uh, can people find out more about the Missouri District online? Sure. It's a pretty simple web address. It's mo, just like the abbreviation for Missouri, mo.lcms.org. Good. Good. And then to your right is Pastor Mark Bilo, the pastor of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Chesterfield, Missouri. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Charlie, for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Good. Tell us a little bit about Lord of Life in Chesterfield. How long have you been there? It seems to be a pretty large congregation. Yeah, it's a a good-sized congregation. We have a wonderful preschool. Today we had our preschool uh, closing for their Advent uh, production. Did a great job. It's great to see all the kids and the families uh, from our preschool put on such a wonderful uh, closing event for this Advent season. Uh, I've been there about 10 years, and it's uh, just been a great honor and a blessing to be there. Good. Very good. So today, then, we're going to be talking about the church. Uh, We use this term church in a number of different senses. Um, Mark, what are some ways we say the word church? What are different meanings people can have when they say the word church? I think in today's culture, the term church means so many different things to so many different people. You know, they might say that I'm going to go to church or do church or like be a church the church. Service. Yeah, and and I think it's it's just really been more and more confusing in our current culture as we kind of define what are the marks of the church, what is the church, and in some respects, what does it mean to do church. So I think there's some uh, confusion on the terms when we think about uh, how do we function as a church body doing the things of the church biblically. Uh, So I think when we get into this a little bit further, we're going to start to see how it really starts to define itself, that it's much more specific and uh, maybe not as broad as people sometimes think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people use the term church to mean the building, the service, the congregational members. Uh, You mentioned the term church body, for example, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Lee, and then Lord of Life Lutheran Church. What's the difference there? 
Well, we sometimes think of a, kind of a, a the trans congregational church, meaning uh, all of the the different churches uh, that make up a church body, mm-hmm. or what we might say is uh, the universal church or the church Catholic, meaning. Uh, across denominational lines that uh, we have an understanding of the church in that sense. For most people, they tend to be thinking about their own congregation, Lord mm-hmm. of Life mm-hmm. in Chesterfield. Yeah. Now, you've brought up here about the Church Universal or the Church Catholic. We're going to look at that. Uh, and then, um, so there are differing definitions depending on the context of what's being spoken of. the An organized church body or what we would call the church Catholic people all around the world. And so this these articles here in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession will get into that. Now, it's called the Apology of the Augsburg Confession because uh, the Lutherans, Melanchthon writing here on their behalf, are uh, responding to the confutation, the, the refutation that the Roman Catholic theologians issued against the Augsburg Confession of 1530. So this is in response to Articles 7 and 8 of the Augsburg Confession, which dealt with the Church. And just to recap here briefly, Article 7 in the Augsburg Confession itself, the main point, I think, was that the true unity of the Church is in agreement in divine doctrine and practice, what is God instituted, and not in human traditions. And then in Article 8, uh, this the what well, we just mentioned here, church in the narrow sense, would be the true believers in Christ, uh, all those around the world who believe in Christ. And then in a broader sense, it would be the organized church or, or the, the church government, the church, the outward church, where hypocrites, non-believers, could be mixed in in the outward fellowship of the church. So those were Articles 7 and 8 in the Augsburg Confession. And then in the last couple of programs uh, here on Concord Matters, we've gotten through uh, paragraphs 1 through 11 in the Apology, which talks about, as you mentioned, Pastor Bilo, the marks of the church, the outward marks of the church, of the true church, are the pure doctrine of the gospel and the right administration of the sacraments as they were instituted by Christ. And then it talks about the third article of the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the Holy Christian Church. And that, that and Melanchthon says that this tells us that the Holy Catholic Church will remain to the end of time. It's a matter of faith. We believe that this one true universal church will continue till Christ returns. And the, the, the value of that is so that we would not despair. Either one of you, why might Christians despair uh, concerning the the future of the church? Is there any reason why Christians today might despair? Is the church going away? Is it dying? Uh, what might lead people to think that, uh, Pastor Hagen? Well, I think there. Are, if you simply judge things on. Um, is my congregation doing as well as it was in the past? There are certainly some congregations that are struggling these days. Uh, If you will, the middle part of the 20th century for American Protestantism, if you will, um, 
were kind of the glory days, the Eisenhower era. The baby boom. Absolutely. And for our church body, uh, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we were planting congregations. We ended up reaching our peak at nearly 3 million members. And and so those were, quote, the glory days, large confirmation classes. Pastor Bila was talking about children's program. Boy, everyone can remember when the church was full on Christmas Eve. and Sunday school classes at every age level. Absolutely. And and so in some respects, some of our folks might be a bit discouraged because we see the way things were and we long for those things or we're concerned about the future. Will will the church remain? And, you know, the wonderful thing is that we have that promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. And part of the assurance of that is that the word of the Lord is what endures forever. And so for the congregations, an individual congregation may or may not remain. We've certainly had congregations that have closed over time. Mm-hmm. But the promise is that Christ's church will remain. And that's what gives us hope. And and while this or that congregation or this or that church body may decline and people get discouraged, and understandably so, the church itself will continue according to Christ's promise. And while we may be in a downtime here in America, Pastor Below, uh, I think there there are parts of the world where the church seems to be numerically doing quite well. Yeah, I, I think what's kind of interesting is uh, about an hour and a half before I came here today, I visited with uh, one of my shut-ins at a uh, nursing home. And uh, after bringing her the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper and having a brief order of service, I had spoken with a few of the residents that were there with her. And then she privately came up to me and said, Pastor, can you come here and occasionally and have church? Now, I thought that was an interesting phrase from this uh, individual who's in her 80s, obviously familiar with the Lutheran Church and what it all means and Mm -hmm. so forth. But the specific question was, could you come here and have church? And I began to ask her, what did she mean by that? Well, of course, I know it's would you come here periodically, have a brief order service and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, serve the people and so forth. But what was fascinating to me was her comment was that uh, for some of these other residents, the clergy from various churches and so forth seldom would come and visit them. Mm -hmm. And so from her perspective, uh, my regular visits with her was the church coming to her. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's obviously one of the marks of the church that we'll get to. But I think that's another good indication, as as President Hagen rightly said, that sometimes we miss some of those aspects on how the church continues and moves on and grows on. But to answer your question, I think, you know, when I began ministry back in 1990 in a rural setting in Utah to do mission planting, almost all the churches were house churches. Mm-hmm. I mean, we literally met in people's houses with five, six, seven people and so forth. And... So when we think about the church, we think about that which is brought to them and how the spirit and the very means of grace are what bring that body of believers and individuals together. So Mm -hmm. I think that's another sense that we have it lost because so often things are associated with the building, a satellite setting, uh, so many other things that I think confuse our understanding of the church. And I think when you look at some of our work as a church body, as an example, in the Dominican Republic, which I'm very familiar with, 
there to me with Pastor Ted Cray and all of the missionaries there is a good example in Central America where the church is exploding. Yeah. And it's interesting to me is that it goes back to its core fundamentals, that the works of mercy and the disability ministry they do is connected in close proximity to the altar. Mm-hmm. Now, as basic and as simple as that sounds, uh, the needs of God's people, if it's in the Dominican, Haiti, or wherever it may be, or in Richfield, Utah, or in Chesterfield, or wherever, is really fundamentally all the same. How close is it in proximity to the altar? Uh, that's not only mission and ministry, but that those really become the very essence of the church. Mm-hmm. And so I think in some ways we've, in America, made church to seem so very different than uh, than the very basic understanding of what we see in the book of Acts and so forth. Yeah. So there can be times of greater numbers, times of lesser numbers. At at times, maybe the greater numbers were not necessarily because more people were coming to faith, but it just was the American thing to do, kind of American civil religion. We don't, we can't judge people's hearts, but uh, Christ promises that the church will continue and will remain. And as has been said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, let's get into some new material here in uh, this article here in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. We're using the reader's edition of the uh, Book of Concord. And so this will be in the Apology Articles 7 and 8 under the Church, picking up at paragraph 12. And the way we do this program, gentlemen, is I read a bit of the uh, article, and then I ask you some questions, and you comment on it. All right. Paragraphs 12 and 13. Hypocrites and wicked people are members of this true church according to outward rites, titles, and offices. Yet, when the church is defined, it is necessary to define what is the living body of Christ and what is, in name and in fact, the church. There are many reasons for this. We should understand what chiefly makes us members, living members of the church. If we will define the church only as an outward political order of the good and wicked, people will not understand that Christ's kingdom is righteousness of heart and the gift of the Holy Spirit. People will conclude that the church is only the outward observance of certain forms of worship and rites. President Hagen, what is the distinction being made here between the living body of Christ versus outward political order? What are, what are these terms meaning? Well, uh, we often describe it as uh, the hidden versus the revealed church. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes people will express it as uh, the visible and invisible church. But uh, you said earlier, Pastor, that no one can look inside the heart and see whether someone is a believer. And so let's just say uh, for my business in my small town, um, being a member of the church is good for business. And so it may be a place where I can build relationships with people. And I go simply for those reasons. No one can judge whether I'm a true believer or not. And so I'm a part of the outward uh, or the the revealed church, if you will, Mm -hmm. the the hidden church is that ultimately the church is about delivering the forgiveness of sins. It's about delivering the goods, Christ for his people. And we receive those gifts in faith. And so for, um, you know, when we talk about who makes up uh, the, the 
Christian church, the the kingdom of grace, if you will. Uh, it is those who believe. And so not everyone who is a member of an individual congregation, be that Lutheran or some other uh, stripe, is necessarily a true believer. So what what why does Melanchthon use this term the outward political order? What is he uh referring to here? Well for for the Roman Catholic Church, they understood the church very much in terms of a structure, its political structural sense. And uh, what we find for Melanchthon and Luther is that they they want the focus to of what the understanding of the church is about is Christ present for his people for the forgiveness of sins, the gospel and the sacraments. Mm -hmm. So it's a a soteriological understanding of the church. How do we receive what Christ won for us on the cross? Not just that I have some relationship with the entity. No, for us, it is an actual relationship with Christ or we become a part of the body of Christ, if you will. Now, Pastor Bilo, I would I would say that anytime you have a group of people where decisions are going to be made, that inherently is, quote, political. There has to be some structure to any human community where you're doing things on a regular basis and making decisions. So uh, does the true church also reflect with, Is will it inevitably have an outward political order? Well, absolutely. I think as uh, President Hagen would know within the structure of the district or within our synod, um, you know, there's going to be two kingdoms to all these sort of things, kingdom of the left and kingdom of the right. And I think even when we look at some of the decision making with the church and a preschool or a day school and so forth, you're going to have to look at things very differently in how you make decisions. And uh, sadly, or the reality is, some of it is going to be driven by politics Mm -hmm. or the way people would want their agenda or what they would want versus what is best and right for the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as President Hagen rightly said, I think it comes down to are they identified with it as an institution Mm -hmm. and um, or is it really this relationship? Or that you must have only this outward governmental structure like Rome was saying. And if you don't. You're outside the true church. If, if you will, Rome defines itself because of the relationship with the papacy and the bishops. And so it's very much defined by the structure. For, for the Lutherans, we've always, yes, we see a necessity of structure, but we've never seen a necessity of a particular yeah. structure. It's always been a matter of Christian freedom. Yeah. And there are Lutheran churches that have what we call bishops, and there are churches that have district presidents, and and that can vary. We're not bound to one particular polity. All right, let's go on. Uh, Paragraph 14. Likewise, what difference will there be between the people of the law, and we need to understand what is meant by the people of the law here, what difference will there be between the people of the law and the church if the church is only an outward political order? But Paul distinguishes the church from the people of the law in this way. The church is a spiritual people. It has not been distinguished from the pagans by civil rights, R-I-T-E-S, that is its polity and civil affairs. Instead, it is God's true people reborn by the Holy Spirit. 
among the people of the law, apart from Christ's promise, even the earthly seed had promises about bodily things such as government. Even though the wicked among them were called God's people, because God had separated this earthly seed from other nations by certain outward ordinances and promises, the wicked did not please God. Let's pause here. Either one of you want to what is, what is he meaning here by the people of the law or this earthly seed? What is he referring to here in distinction to the church? Well, parenthetically, it notes uh, Israel. Yeah. And so, um, you know, he goes on and, and distinguishes apart from a relationship, apart from Christ's promise. And so, you know, it, for for the Jews... Uh, for Israel, they were the people of the law without without the promise of Christ uh, because they had rejected Christ. But even in the Old Testament, though, they did have the promise of the Christ. I think what I think what he's saying here is, in the way that Old Testament Israel existed, it had outward government that was prescribed. Uh, it was both church and state, if you will. Uh, so you had. Uh, religious laws, you had civil laws. It was a country, it was a nation. Uh, you had laws about what if your ox gores your neighbor's ox. You know, there are certain uh, legal matters in there as well. I think that's what he's getting at. But that was in Old Testament Israel. That's not required for the church. And and even at the beginning, when you start off trying to define the church, Israel, I think, is a great example of that. Because how does one define Israel? Is it a religious people? Is it an ethnic people? Is it a political state, if you will? And so, um, you know, I, I think that captures it because we certainly see uh, throughout Israel's history uh, times where the leaders uh, are are faithful to God and His Word, and they heed the the rebuke of the prophets. And then there's times where they stone the prophets. Yeah, they reject the Word. So uh, here, Melanchthon is saying that uh, the church is not bound to outward governmental forms like Old Testament Israel was. And then he in paragraph 15. But the gospel brings out merely the shadow of eternal things, but the eternal things themselves the Holy Spirit, and righteousness. By the gospel, we are righteous before God. And uh, maybe we'll get back to this matter about the shadow of eternal things uh, in a moment. If you have your Bible at home, you might want to look up Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, which is where I'm sure Melanchthon is uh, referring. So we're going to take this break. We'll pick it up at this point. You're listening to Concord Matters here on KFUO. Concord Matters is a production of KFUO Radio. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere, since 1924. Text the letters KFUO to 41444 to join the legacy with your tax-deductible gift. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come and help us by your might that the sins which weigh us down 
may quickly be lifted by your grace and mercy. How is this prayer answered in the birth of Christ? Live Tuesday on Issues Etc. We'll look forward to Sunday morning with Dr. Carl Fikentcher. Issues Etc. Live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. A long-standing tradition at Worldwide KFUL is to broadcast two live worship services Sunday mornings for those unable to attend worship or for those who benefit from hearing God's Word online or on KFUL. From Trinity Lutheran Church in Edwardsville, Illinois, Pastor John Shank is senior pastor with the early worship service at 8 a.m. The live late divine service at 1045 comes from Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri, where the Reverend Dr. Kevin Golden presides as senior pastor. Hear the message of mercy and forgiveness Sunday mornings on Worldwide KFUL. Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Oratio, the dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. The words for one of the most beloved Christmas songs was actually written more to express God's deliverance rather than Jesus' birth. In 1719, Isaac Watts' hymnal, Psalms of David Imitated, was published as an imitation of David's psalms in New Testament language. Joy to the World is an imitation of the last part of Psalm 98. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together. Watts put this ancient Hebrew psalm of praise and deliverance into a song of rejoicing. It was George Frederick Handel, composer of the Messiah, who may have inspired the music, and with Watts' lyrics, made Joy to the World one of the most enduring and endearing Christmas carols of all time. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. We are back here on Concord Matters. Uh, we're in Articles 7 and 8 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession concerning the church. Uh, I picked it up uh, at, we'll pick it up now at paragraph 15 about this matter of the shadow. But the gospel brings not merely the shadow of eternal things, but the eternal things themselves, the Holy Spirit and righteousness. By the gospel, we are righteous before God. And I indicated that I'm pretty sure Melanchthon here is referring to a passage in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where he's telling the folks, um, you're not bound to the ceremonial or calendrical laws of Old Testament Israel. 
And he says in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, that these Old Testament ceremonial laws uh, gave sort of the shape of what's to come, but they're not the real deal like the sacrifices, the dietary laws, the calendar, uh, etc. Uh, they showed, uh, for example, sacrifices, that there was a need for a sacrifice, but that uh, bulls and goats and rams couldn't save you from your sins. But they showed, uh, uh, it was like a shadow of the shape of what's coming in Christ. And now that the real guy is here, Christ is here, we're not bound to the shadows. The shadows sometimes can precede a person into a room, and you get sort of the idea of what's coming. But now when the real person walks into the room, you don't pay attention to the shadow anymore. Any comments on those? Well, I, I think that's really helpful. And, it, you know, I think it's when we think about the way we worship. And certainly uh, places can worship in many different forms and styles and so forth. But I think when you look at the rubrics of the liturgy and how important it is to remind God's people that this is really a, a feast yet to come, and it's a now, not yet. And uh, it's just a wonderful pieces of things that we do to continue to remind us that this is a foreshadowing of that which is to come, as we see in the book of Revelation and so forth. And that's why I think our divine liturgy becomes, at least from my perspective as a parish pastor, so critical in the mm -hmm. hearts and the minds of the people. And again, I go at it from more of a pastoral approach where I can say on more than one occasion how many of my folks who are homebound, uh, but also those who are middle-aged when I see them in the hospital and so forth, uh, have these words by memory. And, mm -hmm. and I often have been thinking about myself Will these sort of verses and hymns and aspects of the liturgy be memorized by the next generation mm -hmm. so the church has an identity? And I think that's also part of uh, what the church looks like. Are we featuring Christ? Or as John the Baptist would say, you know, in our lessons recently in Advent, are we always really clearly pointing people to Christ? Mm -hmm. and, and again, that seems very simple, um, but I was reading a sermon by Norman Nagel recently, and um, and he just had a great line in there. He says, if you don't want to talk about sin, you might as well say, don't talk to me about Jesus. And I think when you think about that, that's, again, all aspects of the church. It is about God sending his son to die for the sin of the world, mm -hmm. and it's for you. And all of those things, I think, need to be featured in the very essence and the marks of the church. So on the one hand, you're saying we are saying that we're not bound to the ceremonial laws Absolutely. of Old Testament Israel. On the other hand, you're saying there is value in the traditions and uh, liturgy of the church for pastoral reasons. I want to pick up on that later in the program. Uh, so I made myself a note to, to do that at our, as our last uh, segment here. All right, I want to pick up with uh, paragraph 16. Only those people who receive this promise of the Spirit receive it according to the gospel. Besides, the church is Christ's kingdom, distinguished from the devil's kingdom. It is certain, however, that the wicked are in the devil's power and members of his kingdom. Paul teaches us when he says that the devil is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, verse 2. Christ says to the Pharisees, who certainly had outward fellowship with the church, 
that is, with the saints among the people of the law, Israel, as office holders, sacrificers, and teachers, you are of your father, the devil, John 8, 44. Therefore, the church, which is truly Christ's kingdom, is properly the congregation of saints. For the wicked are ruled by the devil and are captives of the devil. They are not ruled by the Spirit of Christ. Pastor Hagen here, it seems that Jesus is saying there, there can be children of the devil even in the outward fellowship of the church. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things we talked about early on is uh, to be able to distinguish between the, the outward signs and whether one has faith and belief in those promises. Um, and so ultimately, it is, um, you know, the, the church is always for the sake of the people, for the sake of the forgiveness of sins. Okay, good. All right, paragraphs 17 and 18. Why say more when the matter is clear? If the church, which is truly Christ's kingdom, is distinguished from the devil's kingdom, it follows necessarily that the wicked are not the church, since they are in the devil's kingdom. It is true that because uh, Christ's kingdom has not yet been revealed, the wicked are mixed in with the church and hold offices. But the wicked are not Christ's kingdom, even though that revelation has not yet been made. For Christ enlivens his true kingdom by his spirit, whether it is revealed or is covered by the cross, just as the glorified Christ is the same Christ who was afflicted. All right. Um, It it talks here about um, Christ's kingdom has not yet been revealed. What is he talking about there, Pastor Bilo? Well, I, I think the fact is the the church is always going to be in a posture of suffering, and and the sense of the glory of it will never be really fully seen until he comes again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really kind of part and parcel of Advent, though I understand that often Advent is the excitement of a Christ child and so forth, and understandably so. But there's another whole part to this that that not only is Christ born, but he's come back, as John would say, you know, that his kingdom, that his baptism is going to be far greater than John's. So John is not a prophet, but he is one simply proclaiming. And so I think this is, again, sometimes the inherent danger from a general person's perspective that if something is bigger and grander and better, that must mean it is better and mm-hmm. it's more successful. <coughs> I mean, that's often how the world and the culture looks at things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is hidden in hospital rooms, in house churches, in small areas in the Dominican or, uh, you know, inner city church and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to always look at it with the grandeur of how we might look at it, um, we really don't always see it. So there, the yeah. hiddenness is there is going to be hidden in the shadows of the cross. Yeah. And yet it is, is always still victorious as president Hagen rightly said that the gates of hell will never prevail. Yeah. So the true kingdom of Christ will be revealed when Christ comes again. But in the meantime, often the church is, as it says here, covered by the cross, by suffering as you, as you have just said, um, In my church, we're doing a little series on the Reformation, so I've been going through the Heidelberg Disputation, and this is where Luther lays out the theology of glory glory versus the theology of the cross, and it seems like a paradox. The things that the world would praise 
sometimes are not the things of God. You know, Jesus said, you have in mind the things of, you do not have in mind the things of God, you have in mind the things of men. When Peter was telling, no, you can't go to Jerusalem and go to yeah, the cross. I, I, I had a kind of an odd conversation with a with a fellow Lutheran pastor from a different district and state and so forth. And there was kind of a frustration on his part that when he looked at church, that somehow his comment to me was, to be faithful isn't good enough as a pastor. His comment to me was, you needed to be faithful and fruitful. And I was a little bit confused by that and, and, and asked for more clarification on that because to me it's a synonym. It, it really is one and the same. But unfortunately, as the conversation went on, my perception was the insinuation is if there's not numerical growth or change and so forth, then that individual pastor is deemed faithful but not fruitful. And, and I really struggled with that for quite a few days because my struggle was that when one is faithful in the marks and the works and what this pastor does, um, there is a fruitfulness that we may see and we may not see. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, we'll get to the next paragraph here, and then I've got a question for President Hagen. Paragraph 19. Christ's parables clearly agree with this. He says, the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, Matthew 13, 38. The field, he says, is the world, not the church. John the Baptist speaks about the entire Jewish people and says that eventually the true church will be separated from that people. Therefore, this passage is more against the adversaries than in favor of them because it shows that the true and spiritual people are to be separated from the earthly people. Christ also speaks of the outward appearance of the church when he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, Matthew 13, 47. Likewise, 10 virgins, Matthew 25, 1. He teaches that the church has been covered by a lot of evils so that this stumbling block may not offend the pious and so that we may know that the word and sacraments are powerful even, even when administered by the wicked. Meanwhile, he teaches that these godless people, although they have fellowship and outward signs, are not Christ's true kingdom and members. They are members of the devil's kingdom. So here... Uh, he's quoting some Bible passages that show there will be this eventual separation of the true church from the wicked. But he also mentions a stumbling block that people could be offended by. Uh, he says here that the church um, has been covered by a lot of evils so that this stumbling block may not offend the pious. President Hagen, what is this stumbling block to which he's referring uh, by which people could be offended? Um, quite often in the church, there are times where uh, what goes on within the church can cause, quote, offense, where we sometimes forget that uh, the church is made up of sinful people. Yeah. And so um, the... There, at times, there are stumbling blocks for people even within the church. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that um, doesn't mean that someone is not uh, a true Christian, um, but uh, but that may be a, a cause of offense for others. You know, he he specifically notes that you know our 
our trust is not in the the one who administers the sacraments because even they may be wicked, if you will. Uh, our trust is in the word that is preached. You know, one of the challenges for the role that I have is at times I go into congregations where there has been some source of division, and it may be over things that really aren't attached to doctrine and practice. It may be over finance or different things. Um, but uh, at times, the church, this side of heaven, uh, can can cause offense and cause others to stumble because of the hardness of our own hearts. Yeah, and sometimes people get exasperated by the squabbling and the bickering they see in churches. I know some of uh, some fellow pastors over the years uh, get disenchanted by all the well, the politics in the Senate and the voters. Oh, they hate voters' meetings and everything. And those can be unpleasant times. And so they, they, get, they get this romantic view. There must be the grass is greener over in uh, Eastern Orthodoxy or whatever. And so then they, they, they leave the church, the Lutheran church. They sacrifice the doctrine of justification. They go to this little... Uh, East, Eastern Orthodoxy-like uh, church body, and then they discovered there's politics in every church body. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. Where did we start in in paragraph 12, but talking about hypocrites? And one of the, the real criticisms of the church, if you will, is that, well, there's too many hypocrites in the church. Absolutely. And there's three of them sitting here today. Um, but Four, they, if you count well, Stephanie, our yes, board operator. Stephanie, too. Um, but, but what it means to be the church is we are those who, as uh, paragraph 15 pointed out, we've received the eternal things, the Holy Spirit, the righteousness before God. It It's not... When a pastor stands before the people, it is not he clothed in his own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. When a child is brought to the baptismal font, he's clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so, you know, I, I think in many respects, the intent of this is that we would not be discouraged by even offensive conduct within the church, but that we would trust Christ's promises and his word. There will always be politics. There will always be errors in judgment where sinful people are involved, whether that's yeah. a whole bunch of voters meeting or a pastor does something that causes offense. Our trust, though, is in Christ and his word. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Absolutely. Very good. You know, All right. I think it's, Go ahead, Mark. I think it's just kind of interesting sometimes. I often think those outside the church understand it better than those inside it. Um, because those outside the church will say, look at all the hypocrites and so forth. And those, I think, outside the church or de-church and so forth understand that. But I think what's really saddened me as a pastor is that uh, we just seem to kind of fake it. At least uh, President Hagen was bold enough to say, we acknowledge that we're hypocrites. Mm -hmm. But in the church, we just want to fake it on Sunday. And I just mean that rhetorically in that, you know, if we really understood the things of the church and of the liturgy and the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy we have, and think about the sharing of the peace, right, that we do in corporate worship. It's a sign of our reconciliation. Really? You know, and so, so, and so I, I think to those outside, they would say, you're not even trying, Lee. 
I mean, at least try and fake it and so forth, but be more genuine. And so I'm just implying that if we would put into practice our great doctrine of confession and absolution and so forth and and private confession and so on, all of these sorts of things are treasures to the church to enhance what its work is into a darkened world so it truly does look so incredibly different. Yeah. Advent ends up being such a great theme for talking about the church because it is, you know, it is anticipation. It is having the promise now, but not the fulfillment just yet. Um, You know, if every time we gather, it is the the long promised Messiah who the people were waiting for, who we are waiting for his return, but he's present here for us now today. And so we don't have to, when it talks about that, uh, the shadow of eternal things, no, we have it. On Sunday morning when Pastor Bilo pronounces absolution, it's not the promise of forgiveness. No, it's actual forgiveness Mm -hmm. right here and now. That's what the church is about. And what President Hagen says is so spot on. And I mean, think about the woman at the well and the Samaritan woman. And what does Jesus say to her? If you knew, I mean, just think about, I mean, if we really knew the gift that God is giving to us, how that would influence our Advent preparation and everything we do. I think sometimes we don't live as if we truly know what this gift is. Mm-hmm. I want to go on to uh, paragraph 20 here. Uh, we are not dreaming of a platonic state as some wickedly charge, but we do say that this church exists truly believing in righteous people scattered throughout the whole world. We add the marks, the pure teaching of the gospel and the sacraments. This church is properly the pillar of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, for it keeps the pure gospel, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11. The foundation is the true knowledge of Christ and faith. There are also many weak persons who build upon this foundation stubble that will perish verse 12, holding certain harmful opinions. Nevertheless, because the weak do not overthrow the foundation, they are both forgiven and corrected. So what does this matter about a Platonic state? Uh, Those of you who have studied a little Plato, uh, what what does he mean here? We're not dreaming of a Platonic state. Maybe, I don't know if if you understand the reference there. Anybody? Class? Bueller? (laughs) I think, I think what he's saying is that this is not some dream church that doesn't exist. That was the idea of Plato, is there, here's on this level uh, the rea- uh, what, we, what we see, but up there in the heavens there is this perfect ideal And you republic. talk about, I mean, sometimes guys will get disenchanted with what they see, and so some other church body, they'll longingly look over there assuming that there is that Platonic state. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for us, yeah, it, it, there are times where the what we long for in the church, uh, that there's the gap between what we long for and the reality um, of sinners this side of eternity. And so, you know, I, I think Melanchthon's point is well taken that look at this realistically. This is always going to be Christ present for sinful people. Yeah. And, you know, with that definition, Charlie, I think, again, I just function at as, as a parish pastor. 
And I think over the years in different parish settings, uh, what I consider the the silent, longtime faithful people that in one way or another, um, for lack of a better word, endured uh, church challenges, staff challenges, pastoral challenges, and so forth. But yet, as I see them, be they young or old, they they understand what President Hagen is alluding to. I mean, they understand that it is more than one person and so forth. And I really learned this from my mother, who has been at the same church I went to parochial school with, you know, good pastors, some struggles, some setbacks, and so forth. But she said, I don't go there for the pastor, you know, mm-hmm. and she has taught me this since I've been a kid. I go there to hear the word of God, to receive the gifts and so forth. And and so that's been my mindset for all these years. And I think, you know, there is no ideal setting. Yeah, it, it, there, There's just not. But I think we can ensure that our doctrine and our confession is ideally used, taught, and mm-hmm. understood. Yeah. Now, he talks here about some weak persons may build stubble upon the strong foundation of Christ. And I think about uh, maybe pastors or congregations that do some what I would consider dumb things in church that aren't the best way to express the gospel. That doesn't overthrow the gospel, but it just maybe isn't the best practice. Um, So I think that would be like the stubble that weak persons are building on the foundation. Now, in this whole discussion today, gentlemen, uh, if I could sum it up, uh, we're saying that the true unity of the church does not consist in outward rites, R-I-T-E-S, outward ceremonies, outward traditions. That's not the true unity uh, of the church. But on the other hand, does this mean that these outward rites and ceremonies and traditions are unimportant or you can just do whatever you want? President Hagen, what are your thoughts on that? Well, they also address this in the formula of Concord in in Article 10. We're channeling Uh, here, by the way. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Okay, all right. Um, And so if you don't mind, I'm going to kind of flip forward to that. Um, But... I think it's an important distinction because, you know, there's a wonderful book called uh, Luther on Worship by Vilmos Vita, uh, where he talks about um, how, how we approach or how Luther approached worship. Uh, and he talks about freedom and he also talks about order, holding those things in tension. In the right balance. Faith and love. And so while freedom... Uh, because of faith, we have freedom because of our faith. Out of love, we desire to maintain an order so that it's, you know, worship it has to do with more than just me, but also a whole uh, congregation of people. And uh, and so that's what I think that uh, Melanchthon is addressing. It's what we find in, in Formula 10. So the churches will not condemn one another because of differences in ceremonies when in Christian liberty one has less or more of them. This applies as long as they are otherwise agreed with one another in the doctrine and all its articles and also in the right use of the sacraments. This fits the well-known saying, disagreement and fasting does not destroy agreement in the faith. And so Melanchthon addresses that quite a bit in in these in articles seven and eight here. Yeah. So so the outward rites and ceremonies and traditions, while we're not, um, that's not essential. It's not of the essa of the church. It can be for the bene essa, 
the well-being of the church. And I think you were saying things like that earlier, Pastor Bilo. Yeah, and, and I think for a, a few trips that I've made to uh, Kenya or South Africa with, with Lutheran World Relief and Human Care or the Dominican, uh, even though I didn't speak the particular languages, there was something amazing, especially in the Dominican, for the kids at the school there with Pastor Cray to go through matins or vespers and be familiar with exactly what they're doing, mm-hmm. even though I did not understand Spanish, you know, and so forth. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, you know, I'm well aware of the fact that things can change over time and so forth, but there are certain things that are very helpful for us to maintaining the faith until the very end. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, where I go back to, and President Hagen has seen this, and you have seen this, Pastor Hendrickson, you know, a shut-in with dementia or Alzheimer's mm-hmm. to all of a sudden be completely familiar with the with the words of the preface or the Lord's Prayer or the words of institution. And when communion and the Eucharist is done, they, they go back to a state of maybe being slightly confused and so forth. But, I mean, think about the deep recesses of the memory that yeah. they would hold to. So, yeah. uh, you know, I think we have to ask ourselves, is there great value in that? And I would have to say there is. Yeah. One of these traditions that the church has held for many centuries is the observance of the birth of our Lord on Christmas. And so I would encourage all of our listeners to get to your nearest LCMS church for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day uh, just in the next few days where we're uh, celebrating and rejoicing in the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is what it's all about. Thank you for listening to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO.